Hello, birthday, David. Uh, hello. Well, it's, this is no longer my birthday. We are in a one-week window of your birthday, and we yeah. have not recorded in that interval. That's true. I mean, by the time this comes out, it'll probably be more than a week. Breaking the fourth wall. How does it feel to be 30 years old? I, the way that I've been describing it is that it's the culmination of a very gradual process that feels similar to sort of like easing your way into a warm bath of some kind. Wow, you've really been practicing this answer. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of people have been asking it. <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I'm officially aged out of trustworthiness. I, we're no longer a youth podcast. Any 30-year-plus gripes for you? Uh, gripes? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been, it hasn't been a lot of time. So it's been a few days, so no gripes so far. I mean, general gripes that are in your head in this post-30 era. No, no, nothing. You have no gripes on your mind? No, I've, it's been a pretty great couple of days. I don't feel like I'm harboring any gripes. Wow. Yeah. Must be great to be you, David. Yeah, very different experiences of existence. <laughs> I'm laughing, but yeah, that's true. Anyway, welcome to another Trafe short. Uh, Sam, what is the difference between a short and an episode on the Trafe podcast? Very good question, David. An episode usually consists of a more robust thematic episode, whereas a short is more of a one-off discussion with one person where we're usually talking about a specific thing. Well, that's a very good summary. Thank you, David. So who do we have on for the short today? We chatted with Mira Sukharov, who is a prof at Carleton University in Ottawa and who used to write for the Canadian Jewish News until fairly recently, i.e. in the last week or so. Yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> that's, that's why we had her on. Uh, she also contributes to Haaretz and a bunch of other publications. We chatted about the political context of the Canadian Jewish News and why it no longer made sense for her to keep writing there. I feel like if we do any more talking, we're just going to explain how the entire interview went. <laughs> that's true. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, this is our interview with Mira Sukharov. I'm Mira Sukarov. I'm an associate professor of political science at Carleton University in Ottawa, and I'm a frequent columnist and op-ed writer for Haaretz, uh, The Forward, and most recently, the Canadian Jewish News. Uh, so, Mira, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I should say that when we originally set up this interview, it was a few weeks ago. And between that time when we scheduled the interview and now, a lot has happened. Uh, most pertinent to this conversation is that you actually decided to resign your column at the Canadian Jewish News. That's right. For folks who haven't read your last column, uh, can you talk a bit about why you decided to leave that paper? Well, I wrote a column uh, talking about the occupation, which I really do in most of my columns. And this time, the headline writers, and many of your listeners will know that op-ed writers and columnists don't tend to write their own headlines. So the CJN headline writers put the word occupation in the headline, which, of course, was perfectly fine with me. But it didn't seem to be fine with many of the readers, who caused quite a hysterical stir. Um, they objected to my use of the word occupation to describe what has gone on in the West Bank for the last half century. Now, in the column, I wasn't only talking about the occupation. I was actually also talking about the 150th anniversary of Canada, which falls this year as well as the 50th anniversary of the 60 War, and which also means 50 years of occupation. And I 
was drawing some loose comparisons, saying that there's truth and reconciliation that we have to continue to do in the Canadian context, and that there's some serious anti-occupation reckoning we have to do in the context of Israel-Palestine. So we're actually hoping to delve into that comparison a little bit later in the interview. But just to return to the Canadian Jewish News and the decision to resign, there's a line that stood out to me, and I feel like you probably know what that line is already, where you write, I had begun to feel like I was a geologist who had been hired to write a regular column for the community paper of the Flat Earth Society. Right. Now that line comes from the column I wrote as my sort of exit column, which was recently published, and that was a way of explaining to my readers why I'd left. And yeah, that line really sums up the way I was feeling, and I think I'd sort of said it to my husband that morning as we were getting ready for work, and just something was not sitting right with me. And the, the reaction to my occupation column really centered on the use of the word occupation and really made me think that the Canadian Jewish News readership, and again, not everyone who reads the Canadian Jewish News, of course, but certainly a very vocal segment, was fixating on something that is really fact and was casting something that is fact as opinion or as controversy. And there's so many controversial questions and opinion questions and questions of political judgment to raise, but to focus on the use of the word occupation as a controversial concept in and of itself really made me doubt the integrity of the readership. In terms of talking about the editorial position of the paper, we've talked with Yoni Goldstein uh, several times on the show. Like he's he's been very generous with his time with us, and and he's made it pretty clear that he's invested in having a, a spectrum of political opinion at the paper as long as it's within the confines of of Zionism. And as far as I know, you are the only liberal Zionist columnist at the CJN. Uh, well, Bernie Farber, I would uh, put in that camp as well. I don't necessarily use that label anymore to describe myself, but when I think about the pieces I wrote in the CJN, I would say that all of them would fall into the rubric of liberal Zionism, except for one, which was in the aftermath of the John Kerry speech, and I think I pressed the readership on right of return, but that didn't come into the headlines, so I don't think they noticed as much. I was just going to reference uh, Yoni Goldstein's editorial policy, the red lines that he set out that you alluded to, where non-Zionist voices are excluded, and the organization that manifests itself in this way most prominently in the Canadian Jewish landscape, as you guys know, is IJV, Independent Jewish Voices. And there was one time last year that I quoted IJV quite extensively, and Yoni Goldstein sent the piece back. So that was one point where I felt that there was a principled conflict between the editorial positions that I stayed on, knowing that I wanted to, or believing that I did want to have a voice and some way of influencing the public conversation, even if I didn't agree with the redlining policy. Yeah, and I'm interested in what you're saying about the evolution of the way that you understand your relationship with different political labels, because about I think it was about three years ago, you participated in this public debate with uh, Max Blumenthal, sort of sort of taking the liberal Zionist position in conversation with his anti-Zionist position. Mm-hmm. And in reading your columns fairly regularly since then, I have been curious in the ways that your thinking has changed. Would you say that your thinking has changed quite a bit since that discussion? I think it has. And I think that some key issues emerge in that conversation, and which is why I wanted to do it. 
And since then, one of the columns that I wrote, which represents a real turning point, was when I started to investigate the term demographic threat. And it's a term that's used a lot in what's known as the peace camp in Israel, which would be the expression of liberal Zionism. Remember, liberal Zionism is a term used in North America. It's not really a term used in the Israeli discourse, but we can think about it as Peace Now, J Street in in the U.S. And the term demographic threat is the way that the peace camp tries to sway hearts and minds of Jewish Israelis to withdraw from the West Bank, thus enabling a two-state solution and thus enabling Israel to maintain its Jewish majority between the river and the sea. I started to really internalize the effects of this kind of discourse. And I'd already been mercilessly teased on Twitter by Palestine solidarity activists for promoting a two-state solution and some of the thinking behind the peace camp's ideas. And I wrote about that, saying that we need to retire this term. And I recall that Max Blumenthal was making very similar points in his provocative trademark way. (laughs) <laughs> so that was the beginning. And then it, I started to really consider what the implications would be for Palestinian refugee return. So I investigated that question in an op-ed in the foreword with a colleague and friend named Joshua Schreier. And we looked at that question, I think, quite soberly. And I think that really had an impact uh, on the conversation. And just so in our uh, description of this interview or or in any other forums, is there a a political label that you feel more comfortable with than liberal Zionism at this point? It's a good question. I I haven't found one. I haven't joined IJV. I don't know if they have a membership model. And I haven't joined JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace, which does send me uh, membership requests. (laughs) I think I'm quite comfortable now operating... I guess as a friendly critic to liberal Zionism, because I've spent my life in that camp. I'm insider enough and have enough mutually respectful relationships with those activists that I I think I can be a constructive voice from the leftern edge, let's say, but I haven't adopted a different label yet. Moving the conversation back to the, the initial article in question, the occupation article, if we want to phrase it that way. You did something that I don't see very often in the Canadian Jewish news, which is draw links between colonialism in Palestine and in Canada or in North America. And I have so many questions to this effect. Um, David and I try and talk about it as much as we can. In addition to the question of Palestine, do you feel like there's ever any meaningful engagement with colonialism in Canada in, in spaces like the Canadian Jewish news? Certainly not enough in ordinary Canadian discourse as it is. I went to elementary school in the 80s. We talked about the Métis, but we didn't talk about any other Indigenous peoples beyond that. We didn't talk about colonialism. We didn't talk about settler colonialism, or we certainly didn't use those words. And and I didn't even make the settler colonialism comparison explicit. Again, I focused on Canada 150 and the plight of the Indigenous peoples, and I focused on Israeli occupation post-67. So I didn't actually touch on Israel's founding in that piece. But I think, nevertheless, making the comparison perhaps stirred some unconscious discomfort among Canadian Jews. We certainly have benefited from the settler colonial framework that helped welcome us. At times, of course, it also closed its doors to us. And I wanted to acknowledge that we have our own issues here in Canada as well, and that 
focusing on Israel-Palestine doesn't absolve us from focusing on the political situation with Indigenous peoples and taking the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission seriously doesn't release us from our obligations to other spaces like Israel-Palestine, particularly if we're Jewish and engage through the institutional mechanisms of Canadian Jewry. Let's also remember that if you do donate to Federation and you answer the annual campaign, part of your funds are going to Israel and part of your funds are going to Sija, which is the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, the Israel advocacy wing of the Jewish Federation structure. So we're very implicated. And I think we need to think about justice in Israel-Palestine and we need to think about justice here at home. So recently on the show, we had an episode about the Canadian Jewish Congress and sort of the way that the institutional Jewish community has shifted to the right. I just listened to the whole thing at five o'clock today. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We had Bernie Farber on, who is, Mm -hmm. you know, a former head of of the CJC, identifies himself as a progressive Zionist. And it struck me after we had that conversation that for someone like Bernie Farber to go from being the face of the institutional Jewish community to essentially not having any institutional home within the landscape of that community is a is a really big change. And I, I remember actually reading before that debate you had that the shul that you were a part of wouldn't let you advertise for it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious how you felt that shift and how your own political journey has situated you in relationship to the institutions in Canada. Well, I was always of a mind that I wanted to try to evoke change from within. And so when I first moved to Ottawa, which was uh, about 16, 17 years ago, I came here to take a faculty position at Carleton, where I still teach. I got involved, not, not right away, but soon enough, I got involved in very mainstream Jewish institutions, Jewish Federation, different committees, Jewish Community Center, took a senior position on the board there got quite involved in my synagogue, and I thought that mainstream Jewish communities should be places of pluralism and diversity, and I always thought it was important not to have progressives feel that they have to hive off into their own institutions. After a while, I found that that working for reform from within just wasn't a very successful strategy, partly because, I guess mostly because I am such a public voice and have a public platform in many locations. And as the institutional community moves rightward, those who see themselves as more liberal can continue to try to fight it out or they abdicate altogether. And I've become a little bit more of an abdicator now than I certainly was then. And, you know, part of it is just, it's maybe a prosaic thing to say, but I think social media has become a home that's become a more satisfying place to play out these conversations. And I work hard at trying to bring people together and have the kinds of tough conversations that they wouldn't otherwise have. And that kind of conversation isn't necessarily happening within brick and mortar spaces. So Mira, before we let you go, we were wondering if there are any other issues or questions that you feel like we didn't ask and and that you want to answer. Well, one thing that's been on my mind, especially since I've had the saga of trying to write from within the Jewish community and then, and then eventually abdicating, is how does Trafe Podcast attempt to find an audience that doesn't only agree with everything they say? How do you try to 
um, move the needle and shape opinion within the more uh, mainstream Jewish community? And do you feel you're able to do that? Mm. That's a very good question. Uh, do you want to take this one, Sam? I feel like I have some things off the top. I think that we started the show out of the sense that we wanted to create a space for leftist Jewish news and ideas to be discussed. So, like, it comes from a place of wanting to build alternative community. Mm-hmm. And then from from that position of, like, stability, engaging with the institutional Jewish community and trying to, like, confront and challenge those ideas... So I guess it's like a two-part step. What do you think, David? Well, I yeah, I think I, w- I would maybe add that. To me, it's a part of a broader political project of building power on the Jewish left. And, and we're doing that from our perspective on the radical Jewish left that emphasizes Palestine solidarity, indigenous solidarity more broadly. And so, yeah, so I guess like the political intention from my perspective is about trying to, yeah, build a more coherent and strong radical Jewish left that just by virtue of its presence will hopefully shift the way that power is falling within the spectrum of the Jewish community right now. Mm -hmm. The name of the podcast is already a great choice because it's playful and therefore inviting. I think some of the um, stereotypes perhaps people have of the far left is that they lack a sense of humor. (laughs) And so I think it's important to signal that this is going to be kind of a relaxed space. And I think you, you do... Uh, pull that off with interviews with with people who represent the mainstream a little bit more. There, there's actually uh, an unnamed newspaper that ends with Montreal Gazette uh, <laughs> could not interpret our tagline, which I think we've kind of thrown by the wayside a little bit. But it was a debatably Jewish podcast, and they mm. they kind of referred to us as like they claim to be a debatably or like they are a debatably Jewish podcast. Like sources they, say that they're only a debatably <laughs> Jewish podcast, and thus not an authority. Like completely missed the joke. Um, right. That's good. Kind of tying it back into what you were saying, Mira, part of the suggestion of your question is like, how are we engaging in dialogue uh, with mm-hmm. folks who are further further right than us? Is that Was that part of it? Exactly. And of course, the term dialogue itself is so fraught. And we can get into that as well. Uh, 100%. Oh, yes. Controversial term, even in its own in its own right. Yeah, well, that was, that was a choice on my part. I mean, this is something we've talked about a lot, is that for all of the decline of the Jewish media, there's still quite a bit of Jewish media. And all of it, tends to exist within a certain political perspective. So for us, I don't feel the pressure to have people on who have every other forum, you know? Like, I don't feel the pressure to highlight ideas that are already pervasive. I think with the stage we're at with our project, it feels like we're still in a stage of just getting these other views out there at all. I don't feel like we're yet at the stage of actively engaging from a point of strength i don't feel like we've we've hit that yet well in your earlier days and when i was more of a liberal scientist uh you used to tag me on twitter in for some of your your shows <laughs> and i would easily run and listen and say what i mentioned what i mentioned and, and finally my <laughs> husband had to explain to me you're being tagged because they want you to tune in so um you know i'm happy that i'm actually finally on it so that when you tag me i'll I'll be able to listen to myself all right we can we can make clear the next time you're mentioned although you'll clearly be mentioned in this episode um that i think we can just chalk that up to uh not the best marketing strategy uh but but mira thanks again for taking the time to come on the show and and for talking to us about, about all these ideas my pleasure thank you Oh, 
So that was our interview with Mira Sokhorov. We're back in real time. Uh, well, like a week ago, probably. Mm-hmm. So before we sign off for the episode, this is usually a time where we bug people about various things. The first one being, give us a positive review on iTunes, you know? Oh, like, I forgot about that. You've been meaning to do it. Maybe you had a long day. You just got home. You opened the old computer. Leave us a positive review on iTunes. It's been a while, actually, since we've done it. I think they're called Apple Podcasts now, Sam. Five-star reviews. Okay, fine. Apple Podcasts. Uh, we actually get a summary every few weeks of the reviews, positive and negative. So so we see you, and um, we really appreciate all the positive reviews. We don't appreciate the negative ones, but that's life. I mean, yeah, if you're listening to the show and you aren't going to give us a positive review and you're going to actively give us a negative review, that seems weird. Do as your heart desires. No, uh, but yeah, again, I'm not saying they're not entitled to do it. It just seems odd. Um, another thing we want to bug people about, you, dear listener, is on our regular episodes, not our shorts, we usually incorporate voice memos that people send us. Uh, voice memos being things that you record on your smartphone or, or your computer or anywhere else, and you just send a file about one to two minutes long to trafepodcast at gmail.com. Start it with your name, where you're calling from. Just tell us something you'd like to share with the listeners. You know, something strange has happened to you, some weird interaction you've had with the institutional Jewish community, a project you're involved with that you think is exciting. Anything you want to share, uh, just send it to trafepodcast at gmail.com and we'll include it in an upcoming show. Anything else that we uh, need to tell people about? There certainly is, David Zinman. If you go to the web browser in your phone or on your computer and you type in patreon.com slash trafepodcast, you will find out that we are involved in an ongoing fundraiser to help cover costs of the show. Thus far, more than 40 people have chipped in on a monthly basis, and we are so remarkably grateful. Yeah, I don't even think I have enough words to describe that. Thank you so much to everyone who's helped. We're hoping to be able to eventually do transcription of episodes for people who aren't able to listen to it. It's all on the Patreon. We outline exactly what our goals are. So if you have an extra $5 after you've given $5 to a more pressing um, movement organization and or collective, we actually have a list of groups that you should donate to. So if you have a second $5 or $4 or $2 or $1, I think you can give on Patreon, that would be really appreciated as well. Trave Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM. We record the podcast under the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganagahaga territory. Many, many, many thanks to So Called, to Ariana Katz, to Sack Syndrome, to C. Lavery, to Claire Hertig, to Cadence O'Neill, and to Kira Page. Um, you can follow us, as always, on Twitter or Facebook at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F. And please send any comments or suggestions, or if you just want to say hi, to TreyfPodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon.